0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live
1: from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know... For pivot to pirouette. Fed chair chain Pao basically says he'll do his job. Stock investors love it. No bluffing. President Trump reiterates his Mexican tariff threat and paying tribute. World leaders and veterans come together to commemorate 75 years since the D-Day landings. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. First move once again, guys. It does feel like the policy doves have been let loose once again. The market's behaving, or at least investors are, like they got a J-Pow policy pivot mark two. I asking, uh, and will be continuing to ask, whether two pivots effectively make a pirouette, as you heard there. Well, I can tell you, I do worry, though, that J-Pow only really reiterated What his job is at this stage, if growth weakens, the Federal Act. Don't we already know that? Perhaps the market's just saying this time unlike what we saw in december and january perhaps they buy it but that was all the markets needed to launch the second best day of the year for stocks all the majors gaining some two percent plus we're up again pre-market though we are off the highs just for comparison the best day of 2019 was january the fourth when jay made it clear he was ending his rate hike cycle and would be patient going forward so uh, the thinking here i think is that the fed could in the end make an insurance policy rate cut to mitigate any potential fallout from the trade war at this stage. The logic, of course, if I use firefighting terms here, is it's a bit too late to buy insurance once the fire's actually started here. Plenty of reasons to suggest that fire may have already started. Let me walk you through some of the signals that we've seen. The World Bank lowering its global growth forecast once again today. We've had U.S. manufacturing activity weakening to the lowest level of the Trump presidency or prices approaching bear market territory on demand fears. We've got key inventory data to watch for this morning too. And on the corporate side, Tiffany providing a tariff-related sales warning yesterday, while overnight, just to add to it, Beijing said it will fine carmaker Ford's China subsidiary over a pricing dispute uniquely Interesting timing, says the skeptic in me. In just the past hour, we've also received what could be troubling news from the jobs market, too. ADP saying only 27,000 private sector jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month. That is way below expectations. It's also the weakest month for growth since 2010. We'll get the official payrolls numbers on Friday, too. That... If any, is a signal, I think, to President Trump, perhaps a warning here about the impact of concerns about a broader trade war. We've also got, though, the global central banks acting here as a potential backstop. And front and centre Jay Powell, of course, if the Fed cuts rates, it will join a whole wave of global easing. Australia cutting rates this week. India might cut rates tomorrow. And watch what the European central bank says on Thursday of this week, too. Interesting. All right. Speaking of a wave of nations coming together. Let's get to the drivers. World leaders coming together in Portsmouth in the south of England to commemorate 75 years since the D-Day landings. President Trump, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Emmanuel Macron, the British Prime Minister of course Theresa May and the Queen all in attendance marking the 75 years since the Allied invasion of Normandy, a decisive battle that led to the liberation of Europe from Nazi Germany. Phil Black is in Portsmouth for us. I mentioned world leaders, Bill, but this is about commemorating those that fought, those that lost their lives 75 years ago in what was such a pivotal moment in World War II.
2: That's right, Julia. Yes, so 15 world leaders from countries that took part in the D-Day landings travelled to be here today, but the event itself, the focus of this ceremony which has unfolded here this afternoon has really been about those who stormed the beaches, who jumped from the planes? who provided the logistical and air and sea support that made this operation, this extraordinary military operation possible 75 years ago. It was to honor their courage, sacrifice, and of course their loss Uh, as well. The 130,000 plus soldiers who actually uh, stormed the beaches, who ran towards the fortified German positions uh, along the sands of Normandy. Normandy. And of course, ultimately, the the consequence of that extraordinary bravery, extraordinary organisation, the turning of the tide of the war, ultimately contributing uh, to the outcome which was Allied victory over Nazi Germany. All of that was what we saw unfold here today in a very slick, poignant, yet at times upbeat production. We heard testimony, accounts, correspondence, first-hand tellings of what it was like at that time from soldiers and so forth. And at the same time, we heard really rousing uh, performances from a military band of popular culture and music Uh, from around that time as well and then to draw it all to a close there was the Queen who simply said on behalf of the free world we thank you and so it was that really strong uh, gesture of gratitude to the men who went on and through their bravery went on to essentially change the course uh, of history 75 years ago here
1: And We've just seen images and we've got pictures for you of uh, President Trump of course his third day of the state visit in the UK saying goodbye to the Queen of course before they then head back home after a few more meetings here. To your point Phil incredibly pivotal moment I think more broadly for what we're seeing broader tensions in the world and the comparison at a time so long ago where the allies all came together here to, um, to work together poignant I think at this moment in time
2: indeed true and really taps into what i think has been one of the dominant themes of president Trump's state visit here particularly from the british side repeatedly stressed really and that is that what matters here is the relationship the shared history the shared values the things that have been accomplished together now over such a long stretch of time who happens to be leading each country at that at right now isn't really as important it is about what has been achieved and what can continue to be achieved through both the british and american alliance and in terms of today's d day commemoration in a broader sense international cooperation as well through multilateralism through allied uh, through these alliances and and close coordination essentially it is all about what can be done that has been the overall theme uh, that is what has really marked uh, i think from the british side in particular uh, president trump's state visit which as you say is now formally drawing to a close as the president says goodbye to the queen uh, and moves on to ireland julia phil
1: so black there the power of unity i think thank you so much for that all right Let's move on to our next driver and back to the markets and the apparent soothing words of Fed chief Jay Powell resulting in the second best day of the year for U.S. stock markets. Listen in to what he had to say yesterday.
3: We are closely monitoring the implications of these developments for the U.S. economic outlook and as always we will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion with a strong labor market and inflation near our symmetric two percent objective.
1: Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, and that's all it took, the magic words. I mean, in my mind, all he he said was, that we're going to do our job, as we've always done, no promises, and yet the market was like, well, we believe you, Jay, you're
4: going to be there. (laughs) I promise to do my job in the stock market rallies. Uh, look, it also gives the president cover to continue his trade wars. His trade wars now on multiple fronts. And this is a, a market that is perceiving those Powell comments to mean that, look, whereas uh, a few months ago we were, we'll wait and see. We don't know what we're going to do. We could raise. We could cut. Now the next move would be a cut. And that is how uh, how the markets are perceiving it, a cut, because uh, the president's trade wars could be damaging to the global economy and to the U.S. economy. And you will need the stabilizer, the shock absorber, if you will, of the Fed actually uh, doing its job. It's interesting because in political circles, there are those who are scratching their heads saying this is a man, the, the Fed chief has been criticized roundly by this president who has said he regretted, privately said he had regretted uh, appointing him to the Fed chief. He wanted rates to be cut because he thought that he deserved to have uh, uh, low rates because President Obama had low rates and, and that helped the economy under him. Uh, and now Jay Powell, in effect, because of the president's trade wars, has to do what the president's been complaining about all along.
1: Yeah, I ask myself, who's in charge here? Is it the markets? Is it the Federal Reserve? Or is it right. President Trump? Because everyone's chasing everyone else's tails here, I think. Risks for me here, one, what happens if we do see a conclusion to the trade battles that are going on simply because the president does know how important the economy is to, right. to 2020 here. But even to bring it to the absolute short term, those ADP numbers today for me, Christine, yes. are warning, I think, of particularly from small businesses that if they're unsure, they're going to cut spending and they do it fast. Yeah,
4: so let's remind your viewers what those ADP numbers were. It was the weakest job growth in the private sector, according to this ADP payroll uh, payroll survey uh, uh, that in nine years. Uh, and a, a really quick weakening there. I mean, the dramatic uh, reversal of how especially small and mid-sized businesses just put on the brakes is something that I think is really important to watch. Now, you don't always see the ADP uh, perfectly reflect what happens in the jobs report. And that jobs report comes out on Friday, but sometimes Sometimes, sometimes they do, and that is definitely a, a warning—a uh, warning signal here. The other thing is, it look if the president ends his trade wars overnight. Um, what kinds of uncertainties are already baked in? What kind is it, as you pointed out earlier in your lead up, what kind of fire has already started to burn? Uh, who knows where in the economy that could be a problem um, going forward? So I think this is kind of a, a very uh, a tricky time here right now, especially for stock market investors. The other thing I would point out is that sometimes what's best for the economy isn't necessarily what's best for the stock market. So right now, the stock market thinks that Jay Powell is going to be acting in its best interests all along. Well, I mean, at some point, you know, Jay Powell's got to do what's best for employment or what's best for 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 inflation i think the resilience and we're showing you the screen here julia because i wanted to sort of remind viewers that um the stock market has been very resilient this year even with the threats of trade wars uh and i think one of the reasons is because many investors have just never thought that the fed would let wouldn't be there um as a backstop if
1: the president were to somehow wreck the american economy yes so many great points in there christine don't conflate the stock market with the economy but if you look at small caps the underperformance, there, perhaps more closely tied to what we're seeing yeah. in the domestic economy. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Right, we need to uh, cue that Queen song, Don't Stop Me Now, because uh, President Trump doubling down on his threats to Mexico. Yesterday he said that the threat of tariffs is uh, no bluff. Mexican officials, of course, in Washington to try and find a solution here. Paula Newton is in Mexico City for us too. Paula, great to have you with us. It's interesting because I saw the comments from the Mexican foreign minister yesterday giving an 80% probability that a resolution would be found here. It's a marked contrast with the threats that we
5: continue to get from President Trump here. Sounds like a gambler, doesn't he, Julia? I mean, 80%. I can tell you from what I know from negotiators going into the Oval Office, they haven't given 80% to anything in terms of the president going through with what he has already been determined to do. So this is great confidence from the Mexican government. I can tell you why, Julia. They today will present not just to uh, Mr. Lighthouser, the trade representative, but also to the vice president, Mike Pence. They will continue to present figures, new figures that we CNN just got, which says that Mexico has been deporting migrants at a much uh, increased rate, two and a half times the rate that they had been late last year. And they say they're doing all they can. Julia, the strategy here is to try and significantly de-link the issue of tariffs to the issue of migration. Mexico is trying to show that, look, we are doing all they can work with us work with, just with us to try and work with those central american countries to get people to stop going north through mexico and to the u.s border And we'll have a lot more luck in terms of trying to stem the significant numbers that we continue to see crossing that border from Mexico into the United States. Julia, the issue is here, what will it take? And even uh, Republican senators in the United States who have been very vocal in opposing these tariffs have said, what is it going to take? What do we have to show the president so that he'll be satisfied that Mexico is doing all it can?
1: Yeah, and that was gonna be my follow-up because there's a stark contrast here in the United States, how Congress is acting Towards the situation with Mexico versus China, Congress seemingly, the Democrats and the Republicans on board with being firmer with China here, but alarm, particularly from senior Republicans like Senator Grassley, uh, John Kennedy, all going, this is the wrong move here and it's going to compromise the NAFTA Mark II deal
5: here too the issue. Remember that in trying to hold the line to try and get China to change its behavior when it comes to trade, to deal with things like intellectual property. They thought, great, we have that USMCA, that new trade deal, Canada, the US, Mexico. It was on its way, Julia, there with implementation legislation. In fact, Mike Pence was on Capitol Hill this week to talk about the USMCA not to try and get uh, some kind of concessions from Mexico on everything else. And when you talk about those Republicans in their own constituencies, They want that trade deal with Mexico and Canada, and they do not want those tariffs. And that's what the Trump administration will be hearing loud
1: and clear. We'll see what comes of those talks. Paula Newton, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Police have caught the suspect behind a mass shooting in Darwin, Australia. Four people were killed when a gunman opened fire at several locations on Tuesday night. Local media reports say the 45-year-old suspect was on parole at the time of the shooting. Cardinal George Pell's appeal hearing at an Australian court has wrapped up for the day. Pell is appealing his six-year prison sentence for molesting two choir boys. His lawyers argue the former Vatican treasurer didn't get a fair trial. If judges overturn his conviction, he could walk free. The hearing will continue on Thursday. The U.S. clamping down on Cuba. You're looking at uh, pictures of one of the last American cruise ships to leave Havana Harbour as new travel restrictions come into force. They include blocking access for organised tour groups and banning U.S. cruise ships from docking in the island. Patrick Oppmann joins us now from Havana, Cuba. Patrick, what are people in Havana saying at this moment? And can you quantify the impact? Because I believe American tourists second only to the Canadians, actually, in in visiting Cuba right now.
6: That's absolutely correct. And it's something that's grown very quickly over the last few years, thanks in part to cruise ships. And behind me is actually... The last cruise ship in Havana, Royal Caribbean, says that their ship, the Empress of the Seas, is scheduled to depart this afternoon. And starting uh, midnight tonight, uh, that will no longer be allowed, that American cruise ships are now banned from coming into Cuba. Uh, they've only been doing this uh, kind of travel for the last three years, but it's grown exponentially. It has brought a lot of money to the Cuban government. And that is why the Trump administration says that they're clamping down. They feel the Cuban government's aid to the Maduro regime in Venezuela has kept Nicolas Maduro in power and that they feel by denying the Cuban government tourism dollars that that will have some kind of impact for Savannah to change their behavior. Of course, by doing that, by getting rid of the largest legal category that allows Americans to come here, the so-called people-to-people travel, they're also denying the Cuban people a lot of money and I live here and over the last several years, everywhere you look Cubans are fixing up their apartments or homes to either rent out or turn into restaurants to deal with the increased demand, really an amazing growth of U.S. tourism, U.S. visitors to the island. That is going to wind down starting today. You'll still have U.S. airlines coming here, but with, uh, we expect many less passengers because while there are other categories of legal travel, the people-to-people travel uh, was the largest one that allowed large groups like uh, the groups that come aboard cruise ships to come here. Uh, Cuban officials were hoping to have as many as a million U.S. visitors this year. It would have been about a quarter of the market. They're building hotels all over the city and you just have to wonder what is going to happen to them now. All the same though, despite the demands from the Trump administration for the Cuban government to change uh, their uh, policies across the region, Mm. the Cuban government says that they've endured US sanctions for 60 years and nothing is going to change.
1: Yeah, the question is, will it? Patrick Gottman, thank you so much for joining us there from Havana, Cuba. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, how about adding a living wage to your shopping list? Bernie Sanders is taking on Walmart and certainly will try. And the tricks of the trade. Venture capitalist Scott Kapoor shares his pearls of wisdom. That's coming up. Stay with CNN. first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Still looking like a solidly high open for US stocks to add to the gains that we saw in yesterday's session, the second best session of the year, of course. But we have seen the shine taken off by those payrolls numbers, the private payrolls from ADP this morning. Only 27,000 US jobs created last month, significantly weaker than expected. Some alarm, it seems, from some of the smaller businesses here in the United States. Let's talk through what we're seeing right now. Julian Emmanuel. As the chief equity and derivatives strategist at BTIG, and joins us now. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Great
7: to be here. Now,
1: the last time you were here, you were way out of consensus talking about two rate cuts from the Federal Reserve, and now. You're among the most optimistic. Well,
7: (laughs) and and in fact, uh, over the last several days, particularly given the Fed's uh, uh, term in Chicago uh, and and their conference, uh, we may be a bit conservative, as you mentioned. Um, And the data that we saw this morning would lead us to believe that there are rate cuts coming.
1: I'm going there next. We'll talk about the data and those jobs numbers from uh, ADP in particular. But to your point about Jay Powell, I'm a bit confused. I made the point Earlier on the show with Christine Romans, didn't Jay Powell make no promises? Only promise to do what his job is, which is if we see an impact on the U.S. economy, we act. Why is the Fed so optim- uh, the, the market here so optimistic?
7: Well, if you go back to the end of last year and the turmoil in the markets and the seeming lack of understanding of the market response from the part of Jay Powell, he pivoted very very quickly. Right to where there was no more hikes, you know, literally two weeks later, um, and that gave the markets confidence. Obviously, we've seen that in the stock rally year to date. The market believes that the Fed is learning as it goes along, and the Fed understands that the downside risks need to be mitigated here.
1: Okay, so to your point on the uh, the jobs numbers this morning, if the Federal Reserve is learning that it needs to signal, look, we get it, we understand the risks here, we're on top of this. What about the US president learning that perhaps uh, tariff threats have consequences and for small businesses in particular, when they're concerned about the upcoming risks, they cut spending, they cut hiring, because that's kind of what we're seeing in these numbers.
7: It, it, it's definitely a risk and, and if you look at the the bigger picture macro over the last several months, uh, obviously infra- inflation break evens have been coming down. Commodity mm-hmm. prices have been coming down. All of that tells you the trade war is not inflationary. It's disinflationary. And from that perspective, the jobs number really reinforces the fact that we probably need to find some sort of workable solution to our trade woes.
1: I'm glad you mentioned uh- commodity prices here, too. I mean, oil prices have come right down in the last month. We've got inventory data to watch, too. Talk to me about your energy sector call here, because this is interesting for investors looking at a situation where there's unknown risks on on trade. We've got the Federal Reserve indicating they may cut rates this year. Energy for me is an interesting one to be looking at for you.
7: Yeah, indeed. Uh, So it's predicated on the fact that between the Fed and reconciling trade wars, the economic recovery is going to continue. We're in a slowdown, absolutely, but we do think that growth will continue. And from that perspective, this late in the cycle, Energy tends to work well, particularly into Fed rate cuts. And we have to remember, there's been a lot of corporate activity in the sector. There's a lot of cash. And the stocks have not followed the oil price to the highs. They've they've obviously moved down in tandem, But they still look relatively attractive and ripe for consolidation. So there's
1: catch-up to be done in the stocks even now relative to, to oil prices. That's right. Okay. what about for financials here then too, particularly if... We go from a situation where we're concerned about an inverted yield curve to the Fed back to cutting rates again. That's got to be kind of nice for financials here as well.
7: Yeah, paradoxically, it's a little difficult to understand, given the fact that rates have come in so much over the last several weeks. But the message this morning is that the slope of the yield curve... Is, is steepening. The Fed is on watch. The Fed is going to cut. That's actually going to uh, backstop the longer dated yields. Financials love a steepening yield curve.
1: And very quickly, you said slow down, but no recession. So despite a lot of the big banks this week going, we could see a recession even in the next nine months to 12 months. If we see an escalation of the trade war, you're saying at this stage, no recession.
7: Well, look, if we go to 25 percent tariffs, worldwide on just about everything. (laughs) All bets are off. But the the assumption is that there is going to be some sort of workaround. And the fact is, even with this morning's weak payrolls data, the economy is still on good footing.
1: Julian, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Julian Emmanuel there at BTIG. We've got the market open coming up after this. Stay with us. You're watching First News. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange. This Wednesday morning, we were anticipating a higher opening for the US stock markets. To yesterday's bumper gains, and it looks like that's what we've got, despite as we've mentioned already a couple of times now on the show, that weaker than expected payrolls, private payrolls numbers from ADP just 27,000 jobs added last month. Yes, it still gains, but it was significantly weaker than expected. In fact, small cap firms slashed 52,000 jobs in May. That says to me there's some deep level of uncertainty in the smaller firms in the United States. An interesting warning there. Also, the 10-year bond yield is still moving lower down below 2.1% again. We did bounce off 20-month lows yesterday, but I think just reconfirming what we got from j Powell yesterday or the perception of what we got, which is, if necessary, rates will come down. All right, let me walk you through some of our global movers. Stocks in focus in this session. Tesla in focus, the electric car maker, in fact having its best day of 2019 yesterday, closing up more than 8%. It's added more than $2 billion to its market cap as a result. Morgan Stanley also reiterating their equal weight rating and a $230 price target. So just for perspective, that's 20% higher than where the shares are trading today. They're still down some 40% so far this year. The question is, as some investors are arguing, they now look a little bit oversold right now. We are seeing Tesla higher in the session so far. Campbell Soup also in focus, the quarterly earnings and revenues beating expectations. The soup maker also raised its full year outlook, sales jumping more than 12%. It boosted by high demand for its snack brands like Pepperidge Farm and Goldfish. Also in focus, the CEO vows to keep prices as low as possible. It says the company wants to be a, quote, champion of the customer. The retailer warned last month that the U.S. trade war will result in higher prices. Those comments, of course, ahead of the company's shareholder meeting today. And we'll be looking to see if they say anything more on the prospect of higher prices right now. But that's not the only thing in focus, because there's also going to be some pretty high profile attendees, including Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Some fiery tweets ahead of this meeting, too. Coming into this meeting, he said, Walmart pays its employees so little that many are forced to go to Medicaid and food stamps to survive. Next week, I'm going to Bentonville, Arkansas, to tell the Walton family of Walmart, the wealthiest family in America, get off welfare pay your workers a living wage. Ron Nobles joins us now because he's there. Ryan, some really punchy words from Bernie Sanders though we've heard this time and time again. He simply wants them to raise the minimum wage here.
8: Yeah, that's right, Julia. And you know, this is not out of the ordinary for Bernie Sanders. Uh, The Walton family, which uh, has the controlling interest in Walmart, uh, is a regular target for Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail. What is different here today is that he's actually going to be in front of the CEO, in front of their board of directors, and he's going to get the opportunity to speak for three minutes during their shareholders meeting today. And we do expect him to talk a lot about paying their workers more. But the principal reason he's here to speak is because he's been given the opportunity, handed over this designation by a former associate who's asking for the Walmart board of directors to put a seat on their board for their associates to allow employees to have a voice at the table. And so what Sanders is going to argue is that Walmart needs to listen to its employees more. And the best way to do that is by having someone sitting at the table. If that happens, and perhaps the working environment is better for these employees, they'll get paid more. And in general, their lives will be better. Uh, of course, Julia, Walmart pushing back on this in a big way, saying mm. that their associates are one of their top priorities. This, is, of course, is a big week of celebration for Walmart Associates, which ends uh, in really what is essentially a big party where they bring in around 5,000 different employees from all around the world here uh, to northwest Arkansas. So this is a big showdown, Julia. And I think essentially what Bernie Sanders is attempting to show Democratic primary voters here in the United States is that this is the type of president he will be, not afraid to go face to face with corporate CEOs and demand that they do more for their workers. Julia.
1: Yeah, it's such a great point. Well and truly on the campaign trail. But to Walmart's point, though, here, they are facing increasing competition from the likes of Amazon, who are raising the minimum wage. So it'll be interesting one to see uh, the broader reaction and the reception they get. Ryan Nobles, you have a busy day ahead. Thank you for joining us. All right, as politics and business, of course, go hand in hand at Walmart, Washington's found a common enemy, it seems, in the form of big tech. Yesterday on Quest Means Business, I spoke to a former acting head of the Federal Trade Commission Maureen O'Hanson, and she said it's too early to be calling for more regulation. Take a listen. I disagree
9: that uh, we necessarily need more regulation. I think the question is, is there any competitive conduct happening in the markets today? Do, Do the agencies have the right level of enforcement and the right tools to challenge it. And then if there is a decision that there's anti-competitive conduct and somehow it can't be reached, I think at that point is where the discussion is necessary to say, do the antitrust laws need to do something different? She was arguing, quite frankly,
1: right now she doesn't really see it, but she also agreed that if we do see more regulation, it could take years to come.
9: If there is an enforcement action, if any of these changes or uh, signals lead to any kind of investigations, uh, then complaints, then litigation through the courts, it will take several years. Now Congress is considering, some members of Congress, uh, Mr. Cicilline in particular mentioned this, uh, they are considering whether the antitrust laws should be changed. I think that also would take several years.
1: Egan joins us now. Matt, that didn't stop investors wiping out, what, $130 billion worth of wealth uh, in the session when we got that news. What was it, two days ago? Even if we don't see immediate regulation, it doesn't mean that these big guys get away unscathed. Talk me through this.
10: Julia, there's no doubt that these are alarming developments for investors, and not just ones who own shares in big tech. You know, Facebook, Alphabet, Apple Amazon these really are the um, the stocks that represent the heart of the bull market if you look at their combined values they represent eleven percent of the s p 500 so that means really whatever happens here has broad implications for all investors. And so I think that the problem right now is no one really knows what's going to happen right now. This has just sort of opened a Pandora's box for um, investors. I mean, no one knows if this means that regulators are in fact going to try to break up some of these dominant companies. Does it mean that Congress is going to write tough new laws or maybe just mediocre or weaker ones? And we don't know if maybe this will just all go away with a slap on the wrist such as a fine. So I think that this does mean that. The uncertainty will create an overhang on these stocks that might not go away for years. That means volatility, it means that earnings multiples are gonna come down even if earnings estimates don't but I do think it's important not to panic here you know these companies have amassed just an enormous amount of money if you look at uh, just Facebook and alphabet alphabet alone those are the two companies that maybe are at most risk here they have a combined 150 billion dollars in cash that's money that they could use to pay you know even the biggest fines they can use that money to buy the best legal defense that money can buy um, and you know some of the analysts that I spoke to they're a little bit skeptical that That regulators can prove an antitrust case, particularly around the issue of consumer harm. And one professor uh, even joked that, you know, rather than shorting big tech, right now the best move for investors is to go long on the law firms that have antitrust experience.
1: And that is exactly what my view was, having had that conversation with Maureen Olsen yesterday, was when we see $130 billion wiped out from the share prices, there's no way in our wildest dreams that any kind of fine will be that big. It's a buying opportunity. Bigger question for me, though, here is about innovation. Listen to what Tim Cook had to say yesterday about whether or not Apple has monopoly power here. Listen in.
11: With size, I think scrutiny is fair. I think we should be scrutinized. I don't think anybody reasonable is going to come to the conclusion that Apple's a monopoly. Our share is uh, much more modest. Uh, We don't have a dominant position in any market.
1: The challenge here, Matt, I think for greater regulation going forward is it's got to be a balance between making sure they're not too powerful, but also not stemming innovation.
10: Right, No, I think that's a great point. You know, when you look at uh, these big four tech companies, they've all invested huge sums of money in artificial intelligence and quantum computing and machine learning, next generation technologies that could fuel the economy of the United States for the decades to come. So Washington needs to be careful here. If they crack down too much, if they come down too hard on big tech, you know, they risk stifling innovation and that would come at a time when really the tech cold war with China is escalating. So we'll have to see whether or not regulators are able to find that balance between um, you know, enforcing the laws and making sure that no one is too dominant, but also not stifling innovation.
1: Yeah, Fascinating to watch. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. Now, speaking of innovation, how about getting the financing for some bright ideas? Coming up, we're going to be speaking to Andreessen Horowitz, veteran spilling some, at least, of Silicon Valley's investment secrets. Stay with us. That's coming up. first room and we are in the chat room, the chat room, get my words out, what Wall Street is to big finance. Sandhill Road is to Silicon Valley, the heart of America's venture capital scene. Joining us now is a veteran of that world and more importantly, a man willing to at least give some of its pearls of wisdom. In the chat room, Scott Cooper, author of Secrets of Sandhill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It and of course, managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Fantastic to have you here. Well,
11: thank you for
1: having me. Talk to me about the premise of the book because it's, for my understanding from reading it, I thought it was a great book. Just pearls of wisdom about how best to go about raising right, money. Right?
11: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been in the tech business for about 25 years yes. now, and we've been doing venture for 10. And I was amazed at, I kept getting the same questions from entrepreneurs over time. You know, should I take venture capital money? What does it mean to do so? How do I work with them? And, you know, in some cases, how do I make sure I don't get taken advantage of? And so I felt like it was just time to kind of, you know, eliminate a lot of the information barriers that happen in this industry. And hopefully maybe that encourages more entrepreneurship too.
1: What do you want to see from someone that they come into you? I mean, in the the book you say, look, tell a great story. Convince me that you, uh, you deserve my money.
11: Yeah, well, storytelling is a really big component of it, right? Because you can imagine you're competing for talent. You're competing yeah. for customers. And, you know, by the way, storytelling in a good way, of course, not, you know, hoodwinking people, but, you know, really having a vision, uh, you know, getting, saying something that forces people to kind of want to line up behind you when in some cases it might not be rational for them to do so.
1: But when you look at a company or someone, a founder of a company that comes in, do you go, look, is this a company that I can see going public one yep. day? Can this have a three, four, five billion dollar valuation? Do you make that kind of assessment that yeah. early?
11: Yeah. When we're doing early stuff, we like to think of the question as it's kind of what if, right? Imagine if this successful what could it be and you're absolutely right we have to at least believe that it could be a standalone public company and that probably these days does mean it's got to be a multi-billion dollar company because we know that the small-cap IPO market just doesn't exist anymore why it's a long uh, it's a long story, longer than we have, but I think what's happened is a lot of the changes that uh, happened in the markets over the years were geared towards efficiency, and efficiency is great, you know, kind of people pay lower costs than they've ever paid before. But for stocks that are small of a volume and don't trade as much, a lot of that efficiency is a problem. So most of the investors, most of the research analysts have all moved upstream. And so if you're a small cap company, you probably don't have research, you probably don't have market makers, you probably don't have people like yourselves covering them. Worth it. It's just a hard place to be. You
1: know, it's interesting what we've seen just in the last few weeks with with Uber yep. going public, with Lyft to some degree as well, um, asking big questions about whether or not there's a valuation problem in the right. in the private markets. It, you're giving these companies too much money, they stay private longer, and then when they try and go public in the end, there's a sort of valuation mismatch between what the private market's willing to give them versus how the public perceives them. It's yeah. a problem in the private markets right now in judging value.
11: I don't think so, and I think it's very company-specific. And by the way, we are Lyft investors, so in full disclosure. So (laughs) I I think if you really look at kind of the IPOs we've had in tech, there's kind of you know, traditional enterprise software IPOs, so something like a Zoom, which is also, is not a company of ours, but you know, something like that has traded incredibly well. Beyond Meats has traded very well. Yes. And so I think companies that are growing at reasonable rates, but also have near-term visibility towards cash generation, the market is really treating favorably. I think when you have a backdrop of lots of the macro uncertainty that we have, and you have companies like Uber and Lyft, where, you know, the profitability is still deferred for a period of time, I think you should expect that there probably will be more volatility there. Is
1: there a timing question? Here, too, like don't leave it too long. Is that the big takeaway here, too? I I think that's
11: right. If you look uh, again, we're not Uber investors, but if you look at Uber, the core ride ride ride-hailing business is actually not growing that well. Right, most of the growth is coming from Uber Eats and some of their ancillary businesses. And so I think you're right. You're kind of if you're going to go public, you have to be at the right point of your product cycle where you still have growth that's actually really attractive to the public markets.
1: Antitrust. Talk to me about action. (laughs) Do you think it comes? Does it take years? And is it necessary in your mind? Uh, I
11: think it will take years probably. Yeah. Um, uh, I do think there's a broader question, which is I think in the technology industry, we have not done a good job of kind of appreciating kind of the impact of technology, you know, in, in many areas. You know, we I live in Silicon Valley, and mostly what we see is just the benefits of technology. But you know, those benefits are perceived differently elsewhere. And so I think as an industry, we have an obligation to spend more time in DC, really spend time with the regulators, and quite frankly, better understand how we can get regulation that makes sense and also kind of economic growth and, and entrepreneurship in a way that helps everybody.
1: How does Silicon Valley look at Facebook right now because that's a company that's had huge challenges but advertisers aren't doing anything differently, right. customers aren't switching off, users aren't switching off. Right. But they've had some challenges.
11: No doubt, yeah. Is this
1: just teething issues? Will they be fine in the end? Or do you look at this and go, actually, this is one where the government is needed?
11: Yeah, so my, my partner, Mark Andres, is on the board. So just in full disclosure, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I look, we
11: have, I think the Silicon Valley still has just tremendous respect and admiration for what they've built. I mean, it's 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 amazing when you think about it, right? It's basically a 14-year-old company or so. And uh, you know they have, what, $2-plus plus billion yes. billion users, you know, incredible market cap. Yeah, look, I think what they need to do is I think they have to also it goes back to the prior point they just have to recognize and realize that look all the wonderful things they've accomplished you know in all cases maybe people do worry about you know things like privacy and other stuff that's out there and so I think I think it will be a renewed call for you know a conversation between DC and Silicon Valley
1: and final question because this ties very much to the book as well 75% of venture capital money focuses on three specific places California New York Massachusetts to me is crazy. Yeah. How do we change that?
11: Yeah. It is It is a it's a real problem and I totally agree with it. And uh, one of the things that uh, I hope the book will do is, yes. is, is partly just educate more people about the system and hopefully we get entrepreneurship that's more broadly distributed across the US. We're already seeing it internationally. So, you know, venture capital used to be almost entirely US, about 90 percent of venture capital dollars 20 years ago was in the US. Now that's about 50 percent. So we it are seeing spreading. international expansion and it'll be great to see kind of broader domestic expansion in the US too. Do you need to get on more planes? Exactly right. But that's a, that's a perfectly fine thing. More right? yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's a great book. Well, thank really you so much. I appreciate it. you Thank you. Me. Scott Cooper speaking there. All right. We're going to take a quick break from Russia with love. That's the question. As China's leaders visit his bosom friend, Vladimir Putin, we take a closer look at the trade ties that bind them. That's after this. Stay with us. To a first move. China has hit Ford with a $24 million fine. The country's regulators say the car giant's main Chinese joint venture broke antitrust laws by setting minimum resale prices on some of its cars. That fine is just one of the latest measures that China has taken against US companies in recent days. On Tuesday, Beijing issued a travel advisory for Chinese citizens and companies planning to visit the United States. That came just after the Chinese government said it was investigating FedEx over a dispute the company has with Huawei and there've also been noises about Beijing preparing a blacklist of foreign companies and of course using rare earth in its trade war with Washington too now Xi Jinping is meeting with the Russian leader Vladimir Putin the man who China's leader recently called his quote best and bosom friend the pair are expected to cement their economic ties Pike joins us now from Moscow. Fred, Fred, great to have you with us. Talk to me about this relationship, because these men have met many, many times over the years, but perhaps never more important than today with both countries under severe pressure from the United States and the tensions within that relationship for each.
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Julie. And one of the things that uh, the two men pointed out when they started their meeting, there was a short Uh, opportunity to see both of them. They said that, yes, indeed, the relationship they believe was almost better than never before uh, between Russia uh, and uh, China. And you're absolutely right that Xi Jinping called Vladimir Putin uh, one of his best friends. And what they really want to do is they want to deepen those economic ties, obviously deepen some of those political ties as well. This is the 29th time that the two of them are meeting. And uh, the Russians were saying that last year, 2018, trade between Russia and China for the first time exceeded over $100 billion. Now, of course, that is a lot. Uh, especially for the Russian economy. And China is by far Russia's largest trading partner. For the Chinese, it's a little bit different. They obviously export still a lot more to the U.S. and to Europe as well. But of course, with those very difficult relations with the U.S. really deteriorating for the Chinese, they're feeling some of the pressure that the Russians have been feeling for a very long time. Of course, the Russians have been under U.S. and European sanctions for a while now. They've been making that pivot to the east for the past couple of years it's part of Vladimir Putin's strategic economic plan and now the Chinese looking to have better relations with the Russians as well of course they know that the Russians are not going to be able to make up for some of the losses that they might have because of that trade war with the United States but you can certainly see that the two of them are looking to further deepen those economic and, and, and political relations as well they say they want to sign some 30 contracts a year when the two men meet, a lot of that is raw commodities. We've been talking about this in the past. A lot of what Russia exports to China, things like oil, coal, gas, becoming a major factor now as well. But the Chinese now really wanting those relations, also, of course, sending a clear signal to Washington as well, Julian.
1: Absolutely. And, of course, ahead of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum over the next few days. And the United States not present, of course. Fred, fantastic to have you uh, joining us there. Fred Kleigen over in Moscow for us. All right, we're wrapping up the show. But let me just give you a look at what we're seeing right now for the U.S. markets. Continuing to add to the gains that we saw yesterday, of course, the best or the second best day for the U.S. markets this year in light of words from Jay Powell. Adding to those gains, but a bit of cautiousness as a result of that uh, jobs number. This morning too. Pledge to come throughout the day, we will keep you posted. But for now, you've been watching first move. Time to go make yours.
0: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature, quiets their snores. Sleep number does that. Sleep better together.